Welcome to Writers Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the artistic director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and we're still dealing with the pandemic, so for the time being, we'll have to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book. And of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Our spring season runs until early June, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org. So all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Today, we're going to spend time with two remarkable writers, Rhonda Douglas and Camilla Gibb. Our host, Rhonda Douglas, is a poet, editor, and fiction writer. She's the author of the story collection, Welcome to the Circus, Some Days I Think I Know Things, the Cassandra Poems, and a poetry chapbook, How to Love a Lonely Man. She's won the Diana Brebner Award from ARC Poetry Magazine, the Far Horizons Award from the Malahat Review, as well as short story prizes from Room Magazine and Prairie Fire Magazine. Visit her online at rondadouglas.com to learn more about how she helps committed but struggling writers overcome fear and eliminate distractions so they can write with ease and achieve their writing dreams. We'll start with a short taste of the prose, then Rhonda will introduce us to Camilla Gibb and her new novel, The Relatives. There's a white ship floating on the horizon, on its way, perhaps, to Asia. Adam's experience really doesn't go further east than Afghanistan, and he's not really sure how that knowledge would translate to the rest of the world. China is all over East Africa now, in mining and infrastructure, creating a generation of fatherless half-Chinese Africans who are being neglected and shunned. We're such sloppy creatures, men, he thinks. What is the point of us? To just keep producing children? But we don't even take care of the ones we have. So we are here with Camilla Gibb today. Camilla is the author of five internationally acclaimed novels, uh, Mouthing the Words, The Petty Details of So-and-So's Life, Sweetness in the Belly, The Beauty of Humanity Movement, and her latest novel we're going to talk about today, The Relatives, as well as a recent memoir called This is Happy. Um, and I'm sure folks have read some or all of those at this point. Camilla has been the recipient of numerous awards, including the Trillium Book Award, the City of Toronto Book Award, and the CBC Canadian Literary Award. And she's been uh, shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and the RBC Taylor Prize. And the film adaptation of her novel, Sweetness in the Belly, was released in 2020. Uh, Camilla has a PhD in social anthropology from the Oxford University, and she's been writer in resident at writer in residence at several universities across Canada, including the University of Toronto and the University of Alberta. And she's been mentoring aspiring writers for the past 15 years at different graduate creative writing uh, programs here in Canada. So welcome, Camilla. Thanks for talking to me about the relatives. Thank you so much, Rhonda. I really appreciate you having me here. So let's just start off. Um, why don't you just tell me how you came to write this book? How I came to write this book? Um, I think at the heart of it was I had many years ago now um, used a donor to conceive my own child. And I knew that I couldn't sort of write her story because that's for her to discover. 
But I had all sorts of questions and I thought, well, what does this look like, you know, in the world? Like, what does it feel like for a donor, for example, um, who doesn't know where his sperm, how far and wide his sperm has traveled? And I think my initial ambition was, I'm going to write 100 stories about how far and wide this sperm has traveled, not knowing whether the donor would ever, you know, my fictional donor would ever know. Um, and of course, I think it's Sadie Smith said something like, "You dream, you, you have great big ambition for a book, and you and you and you, I think it's fail better or something." The great gap, um, yeah, the great, the great gap. gap, right? So here's my great gap. It's now three stories, not a hundred stories, um, that have a kind of loose connection between them, or you know, which the reader has to work out um, about different ways in which families are conceived in kind of the contemporary landscape, different configurations of family. And I was really interested in kind of like how elastic is this notion and how much are we attached to notions of, you know, biology as opposed to relationship and nurture. Um, so I just wanted to look at it in different configurations, in different family settings. So in some ways, this is, this is the story of three, if not four families. Um, who are navigating and negotiating around this. It's not really the stories of the children. It's more the stories of the parents and the desire to create family and the questions about what that could look like and the possibilities. Um, and like this notion that the, the idea of family is, is an elastic one. Mm, I'm so glad you said that. Do you have a favorite story among these three? Oh, so interesting. Do I have a favorite story? Well, I started actually with Lila. Um, the book opens with Lila, who um, she herself was adopted. And I think she's never quite worked out her relationship to um, her biological parentage. She doesn't know her parents. She, she, there's no possibility of her ever knowing her parents. And it kind of plays out, the dynamics or the questions around that sort of play out in her relationships to children she works with. She's a social worker. And there's something there that she kind of over-identifies with the children. And she trespasses. She kind of makes, she she imposes herself into their on their stories and gets herself into trouble repeatedly. Um, and so there's something she needs to work out in that story. And that be that the that's where the story began for me. I don't know why. It actually began with the writing of it began, not the idea, but the writing of it began with this image of a child who had been found in Hyde Park in Hyde Park. Um, a child who was wandering, um, was in her pajamas or wasn't fully dressed, had obviously been living in the park for some time and was brought into care. And so there's a kind of mystery around that child's origins. So that's really where it started. So I have an attachment to Lila, but I also have an attachment to Adam. The first man, um, yeah. The first man, yeah. He's, he's um, I find him psychologically very opaque. He's hard to get at, and yet I get him. Um, and he was a donor in his 20s and it's not, or his early 30s, and it's not something he's really thought about. But of course, once he embarks on a relationship, it becomes an issue. It comes up in the context of his own relationship where his partner feels that you gave away this thing freely and yet you don't want to have children 
with me. Um, yeah. So he he's an interesting character to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I care I, about him. I kind of, you know, I kind of worry about him. I worried about him throughout. Is he still, are they still with you? You're talking about them like they're like in the next room. <laughs> <laughs> he's still feeling a little bit of like, just hang over the characters still following you around. I have it, but then I just, you know, finished the book <laughs> earlier this week and they're still with just me. Just lost you. You frozen for me. Oh no. Oh no. Can you hear me now? I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop the video for a moment. Oh, I, tra- I turned off my video. So, okay. so you just asked me the question of whether I, well, I'm talking about them as, as if they're real. Uh, yeah, they are. They're very alive for me. And I know that different people have interpreted the ending differently. But I sort of see, you know, there are children coming into being. And I see this story as there's a whole other, there are whole other chapters that could, this could lead to. Right. Yeah. So speaking of characters and um, mysteries, I I couldn't decide um, in the end sort of what I thought about Oscar, the Norwegian, who mm-hmm. ends up being held with Adam um, as Adam is kidnapped. Uh, he's working at a refugee camp in Kenya and uh, is kidnapped and he ends up in this space with Oscar. And I thought, I mean, and it's so, like, it's such a compelling story. And Oscar is... Um, I don't know, everything from sort of, you know, to describe him as a bit of a rascal kind of takes the threat out of him. But there's a He's little... menacing. Yeah, he is, right? He's, yeah. he's threatening, he's menacing, but you can never quite pin it down. Yeah. It's hard to know whether, what Oscar knows, but he's manipulative too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. He's, but it's so much texture uh, in, uh, I found with, all of your secondary characters, like they're just so rich. Um, the the vet that he meets, also, you know, and as he's um, as he's trying to uh, recover uh, post kidnapping. So let me ask you then about that time. Uh, so the the we go from um, the first story, and then Adam opens up, and he is in East Africa, and we're right in it with him, and. Um, you have spent time in Ethiopia, and I have you spent time in the Mediterranean? Because when I read Tess's story, I was like, I feel like yes, yes, yes. Um, but that I've not written about it before. I, I with Tess's story, it's set in Crete. Uh, well, the op- it opens in Crete, and I had done a bunch of research on this um, for a different book that never saw the light of day. Um, I'd done a bunch of research about this leper colony of the northern coast of Crete. And so I was remembering my experience of having been there. Yeah, it's very, uh, very visceral. Um, That's great literary recycling. I love that. Um, (laughs) So I wanted to ask you then in writing about um, Kenya and writing about Ethiopia, Somalian characters, Crete, that relationship and responsibility of writing to uh, from another or into another culture, if you like. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how you approach it. Both, I guess it's well, place, place and culture. I mean, in this case, these are outsiders, um, but they're also people who are, you know, it's funny. I, I reread the book 
because it was coming out <laughs> and in you know and in, in anticipation of it coming out I reread it I thought Everett, they're all so lonely and lost yes yes I'm There's glad a kind you said of that existential yeah. loneliness that runs through all their stories no one really belongs anywhere and I thought am I reading this through the lens of a pandemic was this always there but I didn't necessarily see it that way I saw them as maybe seeking something. And now I see them as kind of lost and unlocated, dislocated. And so Adam is an aid worker, but he's a type of person, he's cynical about the aid working world. And he's also the type of person who could probably never live a kind of buttoned down conventional life in an American suburb. Um, and yet he doesn't really fit within the world of the aid world either. You know, he says, um, slightly cruelly, you know, I'm not, um, I can't remember what it, what it is he says, but I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. So who is he? He's a, he's a man who's sort of lost and transplanted into these locations. He doesn't speak the language. So he is at a, he's at a tremendous loss, um, especially when he's in captivity in Somalia and Oscar does speak Arabic at least, and he can communicate with his captors. In this case, um, I'm not, I don't really feel I'm writing about a culture in this case. Right, but more place, I guess. Eh? Mm. I'm writing about a place. I'm writing about a room. In the case of Adam and Oscar, they're, they're sort of kept in captivity in a particular room. Um, a room that's in a compound, that's in a country, that's in a desert. You know, it's kind of, and, but all he knows is that room. And he's kind of blindfolded between you know, entering that room and uh, he's out of it, leaving that room. Um, but there is a kind of, there's, I would say sort of, I don't know, kind of, he, he ends up in a hospital in Addis Ababa, um, which is, uh, I mean, it's a quite a multicultural staff, isn't it? Um, his girlfriend is a Lebanese American woman um, so I'm writing about, I'm not writing about culture so much as I'm writing about spaces mm. where people, mm. people connect or fail to connect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm so glad you said what you did about the loneliness, because that was a question I had for you. And I thought, oh, I hope she doesn't think that that's an insult. I mean, they were, you know, it was, it was powerful. It was very uh, emotive, like I, I deeply felt their loneliness. And I too wondered, like, is this a pandemic read? Am I going to read loneliness into everything? <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. No, because I didn't necessarily feel well, I mean, so different when you sit back. Of course, this was, I had finished writing it during the early stages last spring. So, you know, a year ago. So we were into it, but I wasn't in the creative stages at that point. It was more, you know, editorial stage. Would it have been a different book? Um, it, it, it's an impossible question, right? But I do, right. regardless, we interpret it through the lens of the experience of the last year. I don't think yeah. that's avoidable. I kind of thought after a while, I thought, okay, well, there's this, you know, loneliness, at, at some at some level is just a human, you know, a, an essential human experience. But is there something about the expectations that we place on the notion of family 
that in, in the novel kind of exacerbates this, right? So you have- Oh yeah, it's a very good question. It's a really good question. I think that's true that, you know, if we can't, you know, what is it to be human? I mean, what's the most kind of human thing that we do? It's probably, you know, procreate, perpetuate a species. Um, and if, we, if we've kind of failed to participate in that, especially if we fail to participate in a conventional way, you know, like the, through the creation of a nuclear family, um, you know, we are kind of outside this idea of what it is to be uh, kind of a human in society. And, and it looks like many different things. I think, um, you know, certainly amongst, you know, queer families, um, those challenges, but also it's not limited to queer families. Like it's, it's not just about the kind of the heterosexual structure, the heteronormative structure of a kind of nuclear family. I mean, I think plenty of queer families kind of, you know, they, they have their own iteration of that. It's two parents and, two, and, and a child or two children. Um, but I'm not answering your question is such a good question. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I do think we're, I don't, I mean, I can turn it around to you. I do think we're all sort of, we kind of grow up at least with mm. these notions, especially if we grow up in families that kind of are, you know, heteronormative, two parents, two kids. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. It's it's the model we see before us. And hopefully that's changing, right? With the proliferation of alternative iterations of family, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, children growing up with with all sorts of different configurations and relationships that it opens up possibilities. Um, And so that you don't feel that you failed if, if it doesn't look like this particular image. Right. And I've thought a lot, too, about how, you know, the kind of burdens of that, both in terms of how do you separate out your own feelings about wanting to have a child or wanting to have a family from the kind of societal norms you, you've been inculcated in? Um, so sorting out how you really feel and why you really want a child or uh, a family that looks a particular way. Mm. I've also thought about the other side, like the burdens of family, mm-hmm. the conventional family, the ways in which, you know, I was thinking about, especially with regard to biology, there's this expectation that relationship grows from a biological connection. But no, these they're two separate things, right? The, the relationship is something that's built and earned. Um, and the kind of the burden of that expectation where people end up in, you know, contorted in very dysfunctional relationships because of that burden of biology. Oh, so I thought of the burden of biology, the yeah. burden of biology. So the kind of, mm-hmm. you, you know, you feel you, you don't have the freedom to sort of make the choice to kind of abandon your mother, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, <laughs> right. Um, and uh, it kind of traps people mm. in yeah. those ways as well. I, I've loved the, um, all the, the scene, I, I loved how matter of fact the experience was for the women um, who were uh, going through assisted um, reproductions. So, and mm-hmm. say my, my nieces were born via surrogacy. And so that was the first time that I was aware of what, a, you know, this industry that supports people in the queer community or, it, you know, for folks with reproductive health issues to conceive and carry to term. And I thought, gosh, you know, 
it adds some really interesting complications to an already emotionally fraught arena, right? Mm -hmm. That there's this commercial side to it. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, but in, in, in the novel, the commercial side is it's, it's very matter of fact. And I don't know, like, did that come from your, your own experience or, you know, is there, um, I, I just love to hear your thinking on like the role of the, the fertility clinics and assisted reproduction right. in, in the storylines in the novel. Right. It's, um, you know, it's a means to an end, whether you're single, whether you're heterosexual and struggling to conceive for whatever reason, whether you, what, whether you, you know, you're creating a queer family, it's a means to an end. Um, it's, and, and, do I think about it as a commodity? Well, it's certainly being commodified. I mean, I'm just, in this case, I'm talking about sperm, but you could extend the same thing to, to eggs, to surrogacy, Don't, donor material, um, to the creation of embryos um, in whichever way, donor egg, donor sperm, creation of embryos, using one partner's genetic material, whichever. Um, it's, uh, it's big business. Like, I think I looked up some statistic Absolutely. that said it. It was worth, I want to say 25 billion, but that can't be right. Is oh. it 25? 25, I've gotten it somewhere. I have an article <laughs> coming out in the Globe about this. Um, that it's huge business. Yeah. Um, and it's it's presented as if it's kind of very clinical and medical. But it's a lot <laughs> more complicated than it for all its corporate polish. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently because during the pandemic, like many other goods and services, there's been a real shortage and there's been an accessibility issue. Um, and fascinating. Yeah, it is really interesting. And so there's been um, a significant growth in um, sort of, a, you know, a kind of a free market, alternative market approach to acquiring genetic material. Um, and obviously it's not a regulated industry, but I've asked, I asked lots of questions about how regulated is the regulated inter- industry. And then I also have, you know, there, there's sort of cautions to consider in terms of how much regulation you really want to invite into your intimate space, right? Like who, because who, who gets excluded, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who get who gets prohibited or denied? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Those sorts of questions need to be thought through. But in the case of my characters, it really is they treated as a means to an end. It's kind of, at least in terms of, uh, not so much. Lila's more kind of emotionally involved for the for the for the um, lesbian couple. It's more of a, you know, it's the means to an end yeah. sort of thing. It's very straightforward. Um, it is and it isn't straightforward for them, but. I'd love to talk about, I mean, the, so the legal complications that arise uh, with Tess and Emily um, mm-hmm. are fascinating. And for the, you know, it really made me think and, and actually sent me to Google to look up, you know, the current legal status mm-hmm. um, and for, for queer families, right? Uh, building, building family and there's some cases, I guess, in Ontario and BC, but otherwise it feels like it's still uncharted territory. And so it really is. Yeah. yeah. Like I spoke, I spoke to a fertility lawyer because I thought I, it was very difficult, even through 
Google or even through conversation with, with friends to figure out what the state of play was. And she said, we have no um, case law Amazing. in Canada. Um, and so, it, and it's difficult to refer to American law because it gets very tangled up. It's a very different legal system, obviously. Um, very different um, rights for, for queer families too. But it gets very tangled up in debates around, is this proper? Like, I'm, the instances I'm talking about are yeah. say a couple, couple has frozen genetic material, whether it's embryos or donor eggs or donor sperm, and they split up. And then who owns it? You know, and what is ownership in this case? Yeah. You know, did, if it crazy. came from, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and so in the U.S., it get these, these things get caught up in debates about, is that a person? You know, or is this property? And it falls between cracks. You know, is, is genetic material the same, considered the same as any other marital asset to be um, divided, allocated? Um, well, does it matter whose genetic material it is? Yeah. Um, and it really shapes like it, it in interesting ways, like it really shapes the, um, the relationship, the new relationship that they're trying to navigate between Tess and, and Emily. I mean, it just kind of looks like it could warp things pretty badly there. Right. It does because, um, yes, because, yeah, because it's um, Emily who would like to have another child after they've split up. It was Tessa's um, egg that were used in the creation of the embryos. Um, I think in all likelihood, what would happen in Canadian law is that, that, that the assets would be divided. So if there are two embryos, one would go to each. I think that's in all likelihood. Oh, wow. That's amazing because... Regardless of who's... Um, material it was and even though and even though Tess doesn't want Emily to have the child that see that, well, that and that gets prickly right like yeah. you, you know and then Tess doesn't feel she can just you know say okay fine and not have right a, it kind of implies that she will have a relationship and how can she not you know in, for, for Tess um, and then the, the lawyer's name just dropped for me by the way like Solomon boom. yes <laughs> Solomon's dilemma. It was so good. So good. I love Solomon. Yeah. 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 Oh, he's a great character. No, he's really yeah. good. <laughs> um, so um, I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, I read, um, I was reading the, uh, you know, the material for uh, sort of um, promoting the book from, from Penguin Random House. And they had some really interesting questions. I thought, Ooh, I just, I, I, really love to get Camilla's thoughts on this. So they, their questions are, what does it mean to be a family in our rapidly shifting world? What are our responsibilities to each other with increasing options for how to create a family? And so I wanted to ask you, what do you hope readers take away from the book about what it means to, to create and build families today? Um. I, I think it goes back to something I said earlier, which is I, I want to believe that the notion of family is an elastic one. And that I also want, I, I, I tend to, I tend to lean toward the side of nurture rather than nature, you know, in terms of who we are and who we become. Um, it's so much informed by the world in which we grow up. 
Um, and I think we all have a kind of romantic attachment to biology. Like look at the proliferation of, you know, when DNA home, home kits for DNA testing. 23andMe, yeah. 23andMe, Ancestry.com. Um, it was, you know, 2018, 2017, 2018, it seemed to reach peak consumption. Like it was the, the, the I think for uh, people, it, it was the number one Christmas gift. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But I also think it's, you know, I think it's a kind of, it's a game for many people, especially, you know, white middle-class people who know where they come from, you know. Or think they do, yeah. Or think, or think they do. I mean, you always hope that in fact, there's some mystery, or at least I do, right? That there's some mystery lurking there that you're, that, that you're gonna discover. Um, but there's a romance attached to it. And then you discover, I, I, I did do one, even though I know my, my family background, of course, because I was hoping for, you know, dark secrets and demons. Um, but no, I just have a lot of third cousins who've also done uh, DNA tests. And <laughs> does that mean I'm going to connect with these people because there's some diluted, you know, blood tie? Um, it's meaningless. It's it's only about yeah. the kind of the meaning we attribute to it and this narrative we develop around it. And the, that's where the meaning comes. It's in all the kind of the, both the intellectual and the emotional sort of work we put into it. It's shared story, isn't it? I mean, how do you have family without shared story? Yeah. You know, and I, you know I've, I have never been so aware of us as a species as I have throughout mm. this pandemic. Mm. And it's made, it's made me think a lot about um, that whole idea of kind of genetic relationship. Well, we're all related, you know, and we're all susceptible to this one virus. Like, and it's about, kind of my third, the fact that I have third cousins is, a, is, is only meaningful in that grander sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, just because I'm always, um, yeah, I'm always super curious about this as a writer. Um, I wanted to ask you some questions about, um, about your writing life. So do you have, would you describe yourself as like someone who has a regular writing routine um, and if so, um, what's it, what's it like, or is it has it changed in the pandemic what's at all? It like? it, what's changed it is having a child, um, and right. so that's been that's been a good decade. Like you'll notice that my last novel came out <laughs> ten years ago, and you'll notice I have a ten year old child. Right, right. <laughs> There's a connection. Yeah. Um, but it's not simply in terms of you know focus, um, but it's also I think my relationship to to writing changed my relationship to language changed for quite a while mm. in what I way that's still true I, I wrote about it in the memoir actually because mm. I did I, I at that point I felt I could only write nonfiction. I I didn't feel I could immerse myself into a different landscape at that point and I found that words had to matter and that may, and I think in the past, I've written more words and <laughs> become more and more sort of econom- economical and sort of distilled. So like this I loved a- that about this book. I think, you know, everyone who could not concentrate over the pandemic is going to love the fact that this is not a 400 page, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's compressed and it does the job it needs to do to tell a beautiful story well. And then thanks very much, you know, doesn't, 
doesn't run on, which is great. Thank you. Yeah, and it's that feeling that every word has to matter. And we we live in a, wor a world where we are saturated with and bombarded with words. And, you know, for someone who works with words, um, I used to kind of luxuriate and, and drift with language. And now I'm, I'm much more like, I'm just very precise. And it's funny, I was thinking about, I mean, you know, I do a lot of collage because we follow each other on Instagram. Yeah, they're great. Um, I loved that. Thank loved you. That. But I think about when I graduated from using a pair of scissors to using an exacto knife and how much more precise I could be with the way I cut things. And I don't know if it's similar, but. It's a good metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I can see that. And in fact, what you were saying about place, actually, the, the something about, I, I was really noticing in the way that you, the descriptions of, um, of Crete, of uh, even of, of America, when Adam is back in America, um, the rooms, you know, the rooms where they're playing piano, the rooms where he's held captive. It, it, it is, the, the, the writing is ec economical, but not sparse. Like it's so, the actual setting that pops into your mind is so rich, but yeah. So not economical in the sense of, like it's just so rich, it's full. It does it does what it needs to do. But Thank as you, you say, without that luxuriating, yeah, really well. Without the luxuriating, I mean, every word has to matter in the sense that, um, yeah, that it does evoke what it needs to evoke. And it's interesting too, I've never had such a clear picture of these physical spaces. I picture them exactly, that room in Somalia, um, that room in the hospital room, the apartment in the US in California. I just, the room Tess is working in, the office Lila works in. Yeah. Yeah. I was there too. It's really great. I oh, love that. Good. Such a good book. Love it. So wherever folks are buying their books these days, that's where you've got to go to get your hands on a copy of The Relatives by Camilla Gibb. Uh, where are you buying your books these days? Camilla, do you have a favorite bookstore you sent? Ben to? McNally. Ben McNally. Yeah, nice one. Oh, Love Ben. I cannot wait until I can go back into uh, bookstores and luxuriate. <sighs> now there's that I will be doing. I will be doing some luxuriating there. Do you know what I noticed? I haven't been to, I, um, when I was walking along College Street the other day, there were a couple of secondhand bookstores that were open. And I was like, is that considered, I don't know. Are we allowed are, to do that? <laughs> are we allowed to do that? But they had book bins outside, which was exciting. Oh, nice. Right? Yeah. I didn't go in the store, but I looked through the books. And I have to admit, I was mostly looking because, you know, the stuff in the bin is not necessarily the stuff you, you're you desperate to read. But I was looking for collage materials. So I know it's a, a bit... Oh. You know, I, the cutting up of books is a bit cruel, but. <laughs> but sometimes you find, you know, the book bin, you find the one that you always meant to read and didn't, didn't get to. Sure. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Book bin is great. So yeah. can I ask you, um, are you working on anything new now or do you tend to give yourself a lot of space between books or? I am, 
I'm thinking about a couple of things. Um, I'm working on some essays, but I'm also, um, I, I would also really, I wrote, I did two radio documentaries for CBC okay. over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I've got this idea for another radio documentary. I learned so much from the experience. And um, I'm talking with a friend about, because it would be about her experience, about working on that with her. Oh, um, fantastic. And yeah, I've got some essays in mind, which are, I'm very interested in, um, I don't even know how to describe these. What, I don't know what the term is, but if you think about Stockholm syndrome and you think yeah. about, and like Oscar came up, Oscar and this is probably where it's come from. Um, you know, that idea of being in captivity and falling in love with your captor, be, mm. being, I don't know, kind of complicit in your own, I don't know, or surviving your capture. So I don't know what, Sounds what kind of syndrome like this is. Don't we call it patriarchy? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was also thinking about, okay, well, what's related to that? Like there's a uh, Stendhal syndrome. When you go to Florence, oh, yeah. you weep. You know, you weep at the beauty, not Florence, sorry, Venice. And like, what's the connection between all these? Right. Is it the name? There's Paris syndrome, where students from Japan experience profound disillusionment because Paris is not as beautiful as it was in their imagination. Aww, that's a syndrome? That's heartbreaking. So I'm, I'm curious about, I want to kind of explore these things. Wow, I love it. Yeah, that's mm. great. Well, thank you so much for um, being here to talk with us about the relatives. Um, and I guess it's only out now, right? So it's Tuesday. It's coming out Tuesday. So oh, wow. it's out Great. in a few days. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rhonda. I loved chatting with you. Thank yeah. You. Thanks so much. Okay. Um, so you can get to your favorite local bookstore um, and get yourself a copy of The Relatives by Camilla Gibb. That was Rhonda Douglas, author of Welcome to the Circus, in conversation with Camilla Gibb about her latest novel, The Relatives. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. And thank you for listening. <laughs>